Thank you for being with us today at River Oaks. We are so glad to have you here. And I'd like to start this morning by honoring any veterans among us. Tomorrow is Veterans Day. And if you are a veteran, would you stand up and just let us recognize and thank and honor you for a moment? Would all veterans stand up? Please? Would you? Thank you so much for your service to our country. I want to mention one other thing before the message this morning, and that is that two weeks from today, in the evening at 5 p.m., we're going to have a special prayer and praise service. This has become a tradition for us on the Sunday evening prior to Thanksgiving. We'll be joined from our, uh, by our friends from Restoration Community Church, our church plant, our daughter church on the south side of town. And that night will consist of music, singing, worship together, prayer. Uh, we'll also dedicate the Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes that night because we're a relay station and probably thousands of those will have been left here, many by those of you in our church. We'll pray over those before they're sent out to different parts of the world. We'll also celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, and typically that service lasts no more than about an hour from 5 to 6 p.m. So I hope you can join us. Uh, that evening. This morning, we're continuing our study of the parables of Jesus, those special stories that Jesus used to illustrate certain spiritual truths, truths about his kingdom. And as we have seen with other parables, it is important to note the context in which a particular parable is told. That is the setting in which Jesus gives us a parable. And uh, it's important to know who his audience is. This parable, the one Maddie read just a moment ago, comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, the latter half of that chapter. But I want to take a look just for a moment at what happens in the first half of the chapter. There, Jesus tells a parable that begins with these words, there was a rich man. Now that's worth noting because the second parable, the one we're studying, begins with the very same phrase, there was a rich man. And at the end of the first parable, Jesus says something that uh, is particularly strong. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the very next verse reads, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Now, it would seem that there were at least some Pharisees in the audience that heard the second parable, the one Jesus is about to tell, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the Pharisees were a group, a sect within Judaism, that considered themselves to be experts in the law. That is, the law that we know as the Old Testament, to which they had added hundreds and hundreds of rules or traditions of their own supposedly to support their law keeping. The Pharisees were often at odds with Jesus. He often depicted them uh, even in a parable now and then like the one we'll see next week as being hypocritical. The Pharisees felt threatened by Jesus. They were often at odds with him and um, interesting to note that the word Pharisee, David Holcomb uh, 
pointed this out to me this week. The word Pharisee means separated one. And the Pharisees considered themselves to be separate, higher, above other folks because of their commitment to God and to his law. And yet, in many of the parables we've seen, in the parable there is this idea of separation at final judgment. But in Jesus' parables, the Pharisees often find themselves on the losing side, the negative side of that separation, not the positive side. And that seems to be the case with the parable that we're considering this morning. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus could be thought of as a drama in two acts or two scenes. The first scene takes place in life on earth. The second scene takes place after death, in the respective eternal habitation of Lazarus and the rich man. In scene one, we're introduced in uh, verse 19 of Luke uh, 16 with these words, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So this is a wealthy man eating uh, well every day in Jesus' day. Uh, one's food and one's clothing were two of the most significant marks of wealth. He was a wealthy man. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So apparently this poor man, who is named Lazarus, which is a Hebrew name, Eleazar, and it means God helps or God has helped, He can't even walk, and his friends lay him at the the gate of the the rich man's dwelling. It was typical for beggars to be either carried to, laid at the gate of the temple, or to to find place at the gate of the temple to ask for alms, to ask for, for a handout of some type. And perhaps they thought that Lazarus would have the best success at the gate of this very wealthy man. Surely this man would take pity on poor Lazarus, nothing to eat, but apparently... He didn't even get the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, and the only compassion, it seems, was from the dogs who came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That's just a Jewish way of thinking about eternity, being with their father, Abraham. By the way, it's worth noting, I think, in this parable that the rich man, though he is not named, I I think we can assume to be Jewish, a Hebrew, because three times in the parable he refers to Abraham as father. And so as Jesus is telling the parable now, and there are apparently Pharisees in the audience, um, he now depicts what's happening in paradise or what they would know as Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom. And we read these words. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. As far as I know, this is the only passage in the Bible that gives us a person's thoughts, words, and emotions, and of course it is a parable, in Hades or in hell. I will stress it's a parable, so each item in the parable should not be understood to be 
the, th the way things really are in eternity. For example, people read this parable and they think, well, does that mean when we're in heaven we're going to be able to see everybody in hell? I don't think so. Just like when we go to heaven, uh, we don't think of it as being at Abraham's side. The Bible tells us to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord, present with the Lord, God's dwelling. So note that it is a parable, but it strongly stresses this idea in many of Jesus' parables, the idea of separation, final judgment at death. And for that reason, it is a sobering parable. Why did Jesus teach the parable? Why is he teaching it to uh, probably a group of disciples as well as the Pharisees, those who would normally oppose Christ and remember the background? The Pharisees had just ridiculed Jesus when he said, you can't serve God and money. You can't love God and money. Why did he teach the parable? Well, number one, to emphasize the sinfulness of a self-indulgent life without regard for the needy. Pharisees were particularly proud of their biblical knowledge, their knowledge of the Old Testament, their knowledge of Scripture. They prided themselves on that. And this man, we don't know for sure the rich man was a Pharisee, apparently was at least Jewish, but the important fact is that Jesus' hearers included Pharisees. And surely they would have known these Old Testament verses about regard for the needy. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, the Old Testament law had said, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Now when Deuteronomy was written, your brother probably referred to another Israelite, another Jewish person. And it would seem that Lazarus would have fit that category. Be compassionate toward that person. What about the book of Psalms? It reads, blessed is the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble. The Lord delivers him. What about the Old Testament book of wisdom that the Pharisees would have known well? The book of Proverbs. It teaches us, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. But what about the greatest prophet, Isaiah, that Hebrew prophet? What did he write in Isaiah 58? Speaking of fasting, the way people were, were fasting in their time and rebuking them for their wrong attitude, he said, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. And here's Lazarus laid at the gate of the rich man, apparently not even getting the crumbs that fell from his table. Jesus is reminding us of the sinfulness of self-indulgence with no regard for the, the needy. Furthermore, I think Jesus taught the parable to stress the reality that he stressed in a lot of his parables, the reality of future judgment. And in this parable, the need to come to repentance and faith in this life. It's interesting that nowhere in this parable, as Jesus tells it, does the rich man say, I am so sorry for the way I lived. I repent. I'm terribly sorry for my self-centered hard-heartedness. He, he doesn't say that. He simply says, I'm in anguish in this flame. Send Lazarus to put his hand in some water and bring it to my tongue. 
there's this stress that judgment in eternity is irreversible. Uh, Abraham says to the rich man, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. You can't cross over it. It's irreversible. There's no second chance. This parable does not point to purgatory, but rather this irreversible separation. And again, the rich man shows really no remorse, just sorrow that he's in this condition. This passage, because of its vivid depiction of the afterlife in hell, has been often used by evangelists when they're preaching the gospel. And certainly it's understandable that it would be. Um, it's important to come to faith in this life and to receive the forgiveness, the redemption of Jesus Christ, who alone covers our sins through his death on the cross. I heard a story some years ago, and I, I can't confirm its accuracy or the names of the people involved, but the woman who shared it with me, I believe, was from Lexington, North Carolina, and it was a story that concerned this very passage. It was about a friend who was a strong and devoted Christian, faithful member of her church, but her husband was not a believer, not a Christian, never went to church with her. It bothered her, it grieved her, but she faithfully went to church. Her church was accustomed to having special meetings every year they called revival meetings. These were meetings held in the evening and a guest speaker uh, with a focus on evangelism would come and and there would be an evangelistic message and a call for people to give their lives to the Lord. And so after many invitations to come to church and her husband having declined, he agreed to come to one of these evangelistic meetings. And the evangelists at night preached from this very passage, Luke 16, 19 to 31, the rich man and Lazarus. The end of the message, he gave an invitation. Her husband did not go forward. He did not give any indication of interest in the message whatsoever. He walked out quietly and never, ever wanted to go back to church with her again. Didn't even want to talk about the meeting. Well, it bothered her. that He seemed bothered by the service and perhaps offended in some way. But she continued to invite him to church, and as the years went by, he never would go. Some years later, her church was having their regular revival meetings, different evangelist, different speaker this time, and she invited him, and with some reluctance, he agreed to go to one service. They got to the service, sat down, and she looked at the bulletin, and to her very great discomfort, saw that the passage the evangelist would use was Luke 16, 19 to 31, the very same, the story of rich man, the rich man and Lazarus. The man preached on the passage. At the end, he gave an invitation, invited people to come forward. And to her utter shock, her husband got up out of his seat, walked to the front, and made a faith commitment to receive the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. She's utterly shocked. And later, in talking to him about it, she said, why? Why was your reaction as it was years ago? Same passage of Scripture. Why was your reaction as it was this time? And he said, that first preacher, when he talked about hell, he sounded like he wanted me to go there. The second preacher, when he talked about hell, sounded like he wanted to keep me out of it. 
the person who really believes in the existence of hell cannot but speak about it with genuine compassion. A person who really believes in the existence of hell does not make jokes about hell because it is not a joking matter. The Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said, the person who speaks of hell should do it with tears in his eyes. It is a sober, terrible reality. But if we believe the words of Jesus at all, it is a reality. And he stressed it repeatedly. And it's one reason I think Jesus gave us this parable, to stress the reality of future judgment, the need to come to repentance and faith in this life. There's a third reason I think Jesus taught this parable. It's one that the Pharisees really needed to hear, and perhaps many of us need to hear as well. And that is to call for belief in the witness of Scripture. And in Jesus' words, in telling the parable, Moses and the prophets, which was a way of, of speaking of the, the books of the old, that we know as the Old Testament, books of the law by Moses, books of the prophets, as the foundation for faith in Jesus. The rich man in Hades, seeing that he's not going to get any kind of a, a chance or even some water from, from Lazarus, says, then I beg you, Father, to send him. It seems like he still thinks of Lazarus as a servant, doesn't he? He weighs in Hades. Send Lazarus to do this, to do that. I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The Pharisees were known for seeking signs. They wanted Jesus to prove himself. But though he had proved himself, they still did not believe. There was another Lazarus in the New Testament, a real person, a friend of Jesus named Lazarus with sisters Martha and Mary. And in the Gospel of John chapter 11, we read that this Lazarus died and was buried. And after he had been in the tomb, wrapped up with grave clothes, Jesus went to the tomb, called him forth, and this Lazarus, everyone knew he had been dead, came forth. The Pharisees knew this. The religious people knew this. But how did they respond? Seeing a man literally raised from death, what was the response of the religious leaders, the chief leaders of Jesus' day? Here was their response. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. His resurrection did not convince the hard-hearted. They wanted to put Lazarus to death. Because many Jews were turning to faith in Christ. On one occasion, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, some of the scribes and Pharisees were speaking with Jesus and said, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying you're seeking a sign, 
but you really need to believe Moses and the prophets. He would later say to his own disciples in Luke 24, after his resurrection, when he'd appear to them, he said, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow. If there is one sermon of Jesus that I would love to have heard, it would have been that one. Can you imagine hearing Jesus going through all of Scripture? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, pointing out all the truths about him. All the things in Moses and the prophets about himself. Wow. Would love to have heard that. So Abraham says to the rich man in Hades, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Listen, people sometimes will say, well, I'll believe God. I'll believe Jesus is real if I see this. But Jesus is calling us to faith in his word, faith in inspired scripture. And so, just to recap for a moment, why did Jesus teach this parable? I think, for one, to emphasize the sinfulness of a self-indulgent life without regard for the needy, that's important. Further, to stress the reality of future judgment and the need to come to repentance and faith in this life. And then finally, to call for belief in the witness of Scripture as the foundation for faith in Jesus. To call for belief in Scripture as the foundation for a life of faith. So how should you and I respond? to this parable. Two ways, I think. One is by knowing it's only by faith in Jesus as witnessed by Moses and the prophets. It's only faith in him that saves us. No one, the Bible says, can be saved by keeping the Old Testament law. No one is saved because they are especially compassionate toward the poor. The Old Testament law is like a great big spotlight that, that points itself upon our need for forgiveness. As the Apostle Paul said, I wouldn't have known what it meant to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. The law, the, the uh, Ten Commandments, they show us our need. We come up short. That's why Jesus, when he talked about the Ten Commandments, says, you know, you, you, you say, I don't commit adultery, but if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. You say, I don't commit murder, but if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Jesus goes to the heart intent of the law, and in so doing, we all come up short. Yet the prophet Isaiah, over 700 years before Christ, would say this, that this Messiah, this one who's coming, this one who would come, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus would be the sin bearer. He would take our place. He would bear our judgment. He would be the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. The wrath and judgment of God toward our sin would be poured out upon him as if he were guilty of all. And then he calls us to faith in his sacrifice to repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is not what we can do for God. It is what God has done for us in Christ. 
It's been said the gospel is in the Old Testament concealed, but in the New Testament revealed. And you and I have the benefit of the full revelation of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus given us in not only the Old, but also now the New Testament. A second way I think we should respond to this parable is by not overlooking this, this key theme, uh, this background of the Pharisees being lovers of money and Jesus having said, no one can serve two masters. You can't love and serve both God and money. What do we do with that? We Americans in 2019 who by the standards of most of the world, uh, most of us would be considered quite wealthy. There's a passage in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6 in which the Apostle Paul is writing his young son in the faith, Timothy, who is in a pastoral role about leading the church, teaching the church what, what Christians were to know. And he's addressing different issues in the church. And now he guides Timothy in how to speak to those in the church who were rich, who were wealthy. And he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What's he saying here? I think there are three key things to, to uh, take from this. First instruction for those who are wealthy, for those who's rich, is, is to be humble. Don't be haughty. Having an abundance of wealth can have a tendency to make us think that maybe we're just a bit better than the average person, a bit wiser, a bit smarter, a bit more, more favored by God, perhaps. Paul says, don't be haughty if you've got wealth. He calls us to humility. Secondly, be sure your trust is in God, not in wealth. Money has a deceptive ability to steal God's rightful place as the foundation for our faith. It's very easy to begin trusting in our accounts, our wealth, our money, rather than having our security in God himself. And so he's, he's telling Timothy, teach those who have wealth not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God. Everything we have is a gift from God. He's the one who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And then finally, I think the only way to keep from placing our trust in wealth is to do this third thing, and that is to be generous. He says, tell those who are rich to be generous and ready to share. Giving is the best way I know to counter this putting our trust in wealth. Because when we give, we're saying, God, all I have is from you, and a portion of what you've given to me, I am investing in your kingdom for the spreading of your gospel, for the helping of the poor, for the meeting of the needs of others. I recognize, God, that it's all yours. And so in our response to the parable, I think most importantly, it's a call to faith in Jesus as witnessed by the prophets as the only way to have certainty of eternal life with God and not come under judgment for our sins. Secondly, using our wealth in accord with God's guidance. Would you join me as we pray about these things this morning?
Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit be at work among us. And I pray first for anyone here who does not truly know you yet. For anyone who may simply believe in your existence and your reality, but has not humbled themselves to embrace the salvation Jesus provided on the cross. Father, would you so work in that one is to bring, <clears throat> bring them to place of repentance, turning from sin, turning to you, turning from self, turning to you as the only source of our salvation. Father, for others among us, Lord, would you open our eyes to see the needs of the poor around us? Let us not be like the rich man and neglect the obvious need that you place before our eyes. Let us as a church not neglect obvious need. Let us be, Lord, increasingly individuals and a church that is used as a channel of your blessing to the world. Make us generous people, Father. Make us a generous church. Do your work through us. And we ask these things in the great name of our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.